Look forward to more of what God wants to give us. It's just a little bit different uh, having so many gone. And uh, I know that there's some, uh, <coughs> the youth are gone and quite a few of the, are a number of, of the family members that are, are uh, with the youth this weekend. There's spouses that aren't here for various reasons. And, uh, but anyhow, just also want to mention that next Sunday, Glad and I and our family will well, probably, the plans are that we won't be here. Nephew's getting married, and so we'll probably be, uh, we're planning to attend that, so we won't be here. And uh, as I was uh, trying to, uh, we were sort of doing the last minute uh, details for next Sunday, uh, all of a sudden I realized that we had a glitch in the uh, in the scheduling. And I, I believe that a Gideon speaker, Fred Eiler, is planning on being here, and somehow... Uh, that didn't get in our chart uh, as we were uh, planning the the few months ahead, and uh, but I'll, I'll confirm that for sure with Keith. But I, I do believe Fred is scheduled. He was making the arrangements through Henry, and Henry's not here this morning. So anyhow, just give you a little bit of a heads up. Well, we're going back to the New Testament ecclesiology uh, series, and uh, this morning I uh, the the message title that I have is Smyrna. A triumphant and fadeless Stephonus. I'm not sure what's wrong. Um, and I'd like to turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2 for the text. I don't have it on the PowerPoint, but uh, please follow along in, the, in your Bibles. And uh, we're going to read the text. Revelation chapter 2, starting to read in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which are about to happen that you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be fruitful unto death, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The year was 156 A.D., around 123 years after the Christian church had been birthed. Polycarp, the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, who was a disciple and a contemporary of John the Baptist, uh, was a remarkable example of courage and dignity as a first-century Christian. The noose of persecution had tightened around the necks of the Christians for many years and was becoming even more severe. It had basically become a way of life for them. In fact, the year after Polycarp 
returned from Rome. He had been in Rome and he came back to Smyrna. Another great wave of persecution was coming against the Christians, particularly in the area of Smyrna. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the intensity blew over. And so him believing that God wanted him to be around for a few more years, decided to uh, leave the city. And uh, he left and went out into a farm out in the country with some Christian friends. And there's where he uh, 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 hid from the authorities. One day on the farm, as he was praying to God, he had a vision. And the vision was that he, his head was laying on a pillow, or he had his head on a pillow, and the pillow uh, burst into flames, and it was burning. And from that vision, he understood from God that this was a message from God. And later on, he shared with some of his fellow believers, he, he calmly told them, he said, I see that I must be burned at the stake. Well, meanwhile, the chief of police had issued a warning, or a, a, uh, issued a uh, warrant for his arrest, for Polycarp's arrest. But they couldn't find him. And so instead, they, they seized one of his servants, one of Polycarp's servants, and, he, and they tortured him until he, until he came out and told them where he was hiding. Toward evening, the chief of police and the soldiers that were with him uh, came out to the old farmhouse, and uh, there they found Polycarp. It was it said that the, the soldiers were embarrassed when they realized that the person that they were after was an old, frail man. And so they reluctantly took him on, his donkey, on their donkey, and they headed back to the city of Smyrna. On the way back to the city, the, the chief of police and the other, other uh, government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar and to say, Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to do. And uh, he would be off the hook. He would be free to go and do whatever he wanted. In fact, it said that they pled with him to do this. So that they would, that, so that he would uh, escape the uh, dreadful penalty that was that was before him. Polycarp was silent for a moment, and uh, finally, he gave a calm answer and said, "No." His answer was firm and resolute. He wouldn't do it. So the proconsul promptly sentenced him to uh, death by fire, and they led him to the arena where the games had already begun. A large, bloodthirsty crowd had been gathered at the arena to see other Christians being killed and tortured. One of the Christians that was there that day, Quintus by name, had boldly proclaimed that he was a follower of Jesus Christ and that he was willing to be martyred. But when push came to shove, and when he saw the vicious lions in the arena there with him, he gave up and recanted and said, Caesar is Lord. Another young man who was there, Germanius, didn't back down. He marched out and he faced the lions and he died an agonizing death 
for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ten other Christians were martyred that day in front of the mob. And yet the mob was still unsatisfied. They began to chant, Away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. Away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. To them, the Christians were the atheists because they did not recognize the traditional gods of the Romans and the Greeks. Finally, the crowd began to chant, Bring out Polycarp! Bring out Polycarp! And so tradition says that as they brought Polycarp out into the arena, he and the other Christians in the audience that day heard a, a voice from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp. Play the man. As he stood before the proconsul, they tried one more time to get him to recant and to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp, all you have to do is agree with the crowd and shout out, away with the atheists. That's all you have to do. But instead, Polycarp looked sternly at the bloodthirsty mob and waved his hand toward them and said, away with those atheists. The proconsul persisted. Take an oath to revile Christ and I'll set you free. To which Polycarp responded, Four score and six years I've served him, and he has done me no harm. How can, that, how can I then curse the king who saved me? The proconsul finally gave up, and he announced to the crowd his crime. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Immediately, the crowd began to cry out, Loosen the lions! Loosen the lions! However, the, the, the animals had already been put away. And so the crowd demanded that Polycarp be burned. Hearing the request of the, of, the, of the crowd, the old man remembered the dream that he had dreamt years earlier, or sometime earlier, and uh, about the pillow being uh, burning, the burning pillow. And he strengthened himself in the Lord. And he told the executioner, it is well, I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come do your will. They quickly arranged a great pile of wood and they set a pole in the middle of it. And as they tied Polycarp to the pole, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour that I may receive a portion of thy number of thy, of thy martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And after he prayed, he gave thanks to God, and they set the wood ablaze. It says that there was a great wall of fire that, uh, that raged as they, as, they the, as they started the fire and, or, or lit the wood, and, it, and the, the flames shot up into the sky. But ironically, the fire never touched Polycarp. The executioner, it was just as if God had placed a hedge of protection around Polycarp. And, and when the executioner saw what was going on, that he would not burn, in a furious rage, he took his long sword and thrust it into the side of Polycarp. It said that blood flowed out of his side, and it seemed as if the blood quenched what fire still remained. 
When this happened, the witnesses again in the audience said that they saw a, fl a dove flying out of the smoke up into heaven. At the very same moment, a church leader over in Rome, Irenaeus, some 800 miles away as the crow flies, heard God tell him, Polycarp is dead. God had called another servant home. I don't know about you, but I am always deeply challenged and stirred in my heart when I read or hear of a story of individuals whose devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ was so great that it cost them their lives. Wow. What was it about their character or the character of the church at Smyrna that God gave only words of commendation to them? There was nothing that he gave as a negative to the church at Smyrna. It certainly didn't have anything to do with the character of the city since Smyrna was deeply committed to idolatry and the worship of the Roman Empire. Smyrna, which today is modern-day Izmir, it is the third largest city in Turkey today, and uh, it was uh, established many years before uh, uh, the, the birth of Christ. This is a uh, this is a, a satellite image of of Smyrna, and if you sort of look around the banks of this of this river here is the city of Smyrna, and that's, that's today. And so you can see that they're, they're at the head of, of the uh, Hermas River, which then flows out into the uh, Aegean Sea. And so because of this large, beautiful city nestled at the head of this river, uh, only about 37 miles north of Ephesus, this strategically placed town lent itself to be a trade town, and it was also known for its impressive wines. Like Ephesus, it was a city that had lots of wealth and commercial greatness. It was a very influential town in its day, particularly back here in the time of Smyrna, and even today, it's still a very uh, um, healthy and robust town, city. We also know from history that, that, there, they, that they had a famous street called the Golden Street in which there were five magnificent temples, one being the temple that was built to Zeus. But about the time that the church was being birthed, about the turn of the, uh, of the, of the New Dispensation, that era of time, right in the time that the book of Revelation was being written, even though they were still deeply steeped in the Grecian theology and philosophy and also the, the, the influence of the Romans, uh, the, the worship of the pagan gods were starting to die out. The real focus of worship was becoming more and more focused on the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was really what was becoming influential in their culture. The Roman emperor... Uh, Domitian, who reigned from A.D. 81 to 96, right over the time 
that John the Baptist was, ex I mean, uh, um, exported or, or taken to the Isle of Patmos. In fact, it's probably under Domitian's rule that he was taken out there uh, to the Isle of Patmos and where the revelation was given to him. Domitian uh, was the one who was beginning to demand more and more allegiance from the people. And he operated under the title Lord as a test of political loyalty. It was under the rule of Domitian that the worship of Caesar became compulsory. All that the Christians had to do, it was said, was to burn a pinch of incense on, a, on an altar of, uh, to Caesar and, and to say, Caesar is Lord. That's all they had to do. If they did this, they were issued a certificate and then they were free to go and worship as they pleased. It didn't matter whether they were, whether they worshiped the God of Zeus or, or uh, uh, the God in heaven or whatever. All they had to do was offer a, a pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And that left them free. But that's precisely what the Christians would not do. They would only reserve the name Lord for Jesus Christ and him alone. They were not, there was, there was no, there was no, um, there was no formal confirmation to their request. So this was the setting in which the, the church of Smyrna was uh, found itself when this, uh, when when Jesus spoke what he did concerning them. Now, let's go back to the passage of Scripture. Jesus said, "I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich." Now, let's just pause right there for a moment. These people were facing some really tough times. I mean, even though the city was influential and things were going well for them, economically they were thriving, the Christians were facing some very, very tough situations. In fact, the word uh, tribulation has the idea of anguish and pressure. And then it says that he also noticed their poverty. And that too has a, it's, it's more than just being poor. It has the idea of being beggarly. Indigent, in, 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 okay, let me say it correctly. Indigent, which means a seriously impoverished, con, impoverished condition. I mean, it was more, it was, it was an, an abject poverty, poverty of the worst sort. So that's what these Christians were facing as they, as they lived in this prosperous city. But what really caught my attention in what Jesus said was, but you are rich. He didn't gloss over the facts. He recognized that they were facing some tough times. They were poor. They were destitute. They, were, they had a lot of things going against them, poverty being one of them. And yet he considered them rich. Obviously, Jesus was looking through the circumstances into the character of who that church was. The contrast between material poverty and spiritual riches as these fellow believers had 
reminds us that there's really nothing inherently spiritual about being poor or rich. But as someone said, better to be a rich, poor church than to be a poor, rich church. And that's where these people found themselves. They were a rich, poor church. Perhaps we're tempted, as I am, to think that, that Christians who endure persecution are almost superhuman, as if they have a, a strength about them that we can't achieve. Well, if you think that way, let's go back to verse 10. Verse 10 says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. You will have tribulation ten days. That phrase, do not fear, is probably better translated, stop being afraid. You see, these people had the same emotions we would in that same situation. They weren't so callous to, to pain and suffering that... They just invited it into their lives. I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure they had the same struggle that we would have. And by the way, to be thrown into a, into a Roman prison was not for purposes of rehabilitation. If you were thrown into a Roman prison, you had what, what awaited you was, was basically a, a, a trial and then execution most of the time. So being in a Roman prison was not a small thing. And so Jesus is just encouraging them, don't be afraid. Yeah, it's going to happen. You will face these things, but don't be afraid. Take comfort in that. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on, and gives them, and us, I might add, these comforting words. Listen to what he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now those words are very comforting if we understand what all Jesus was saying there. There are two different types of crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. The one crown uh, in the Greek language is dia, diadema. And uh, it's obviously where we get the word diadem. And it's a crown of royalty. It's the kind of crown that a king wore. Um, it was a, a, a kingly ornament. And uh, typically it would have a blue band on it, interwoven with a white strip around it. Uh, among the Greeks and the Romans, it was a distinctive badge of, of royalty. It's mentioned... Three times in scripture, I believe. Maybe four, I forget. Three or four times it's mentioned in scripture. Twice I know, in the book of in the book of Revelation, it's it's mentioned that the, the beast wore these this crown and uh, the dragon wore this crown, this kind of crown. But the crown that we read about here, where Jesus said, If you're faithful, I will give you a crown of life. That crown is the Stephanos. It was given as a trophy to a winning athlete. 
It was the victor's crown. It became a symbolic triumph. It, it became a symbol of triumph in their games, in their as an athlete, much like the huge trophies that are handed out to uh, athletes today. I know some of you might be uh, familiar with some of the most sought-after sports trophies today. There's the Larry O'Brien Trophy. And what's that one? What game's that? Come on. The NBA. The basketball. It's the Larry O'Brien Trophy. The Vince Lombardi. NFL. Stanley Cup. NHL. The Hockey. The World Cup. Soccer. All these trophies. And if you've ever witnessed any of these athletes taking these trophies, you'll probably have witnessed these big, tough, rough-and-tumble athletes shedding tears as they proudly carry this big trophy on their shoulder. The thing that they worked hard for all year long, defeated all the odds, and here we are. We, we accomplished it. We won. And many times this trophy is handed off one, from one team member to the other as they prance around the arena and showing off this, this trophy that they won. This is the kind of crown that is talked about in this passage of Scripture. It's a symbol of triumph. I have accomplished. We have accomplished. It's this kind of crown, or this kind of trophy, if you will, that Jesus said awaits to those who faithfully are faithful to the very end. It's the kind of crown that will not fade or die or tarnish with time. By the way, very appropriately, it was this kind of crown that was placed on the head of Jesus. The crown of thorns. It was a Stephanos of thorns. To the crowd, it was a symbol of scorn. To our Lord Jesus Christ, his father, he was saying, yes, it's my son. He is triumphant. So what was a, what was a crown of thorns and scorn to the crowd it was a crown of triumph for, for our Lord, for the father. Well, I believe the spirit the Holy Spirit has something to say through each of the seven churches that are mentioned here in Revelation for us today. I mentioned that a couple Sundays ago when I first introduced this subject. However, the letter to the church of Smyrna may appeal least of all to the modern Western church. I'm concerned that we have become so cushioned and pampered that if we were to face the degree of persecution that has spanned the history of the church, I'm concerned that many of us would either outwardly react or inwardly cave. I've often wondered how I would face times of persecution and revile. Certainly hope by the grace of God that I would stand strong and with steadfast commitment 
to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to do that by His grace. But I also realize that that kind of commitment is determined a lot by who I am today. My actions and my attitudes during times of freedom and choice significantly shape the person I am if I were given an ultimatum. You cannot live the half-hearted fringe of Christendom and expect to have the spiritual strength and the commitment to say, I will die for the sake of Christ if you come to that point, if you're put to that test. It starts with a full commitment today. So what are the things that we can learn from this? I want to talk a little bit about the difference between privilege and rights. I think equally as dangerous as living a half-hearted Christian life, I think equally as dangerous is the erroneous belief that it is my right to not have my freedoms infringed upon or violated or removed. Says who? I think it's very arrogant of me to think that I deserve earthly freedom. Not that not one of us no one of us, no one in this world, deserves being born in the United States of America. Certainly we don't. For we have been privileged to experience freedoms that the majority of the people in this world have not experienced. This is not a right. God has been very, very, very gracious to us. It is also not our right to continue having Christian freedoms such as we've experienced this past 237 years. More than anything, I think it should cause us to fall in humility before the Father and thank Him for His benevolence to us, something we're totally undeserving of. I'm bothered when I hear Christians bashing the government for the rights that are being violated as if they, the government, were the ones who are responsible for the good things that we've experienced. Psalm 73 verse 1 says, God is good to us. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is His character. It is, who de it is what defines Him. The government is not our source of goodness. So don't look to them to fill that need. Furthermore, God is not obligated. He never has been, never will be. He's not obligated, as some might think, to privilege anyone with the freedoms that we've experienced. He's not obligated to me. I don't know, understand, I don't understand the ways God, I do not understand why I was privileged to be born in a land where we have had freedoms up until this point. It is a gift of God. Many, most people of the world have not experienced that. 
many people have it to the degree that we have it. Now, let me quickly add, very quickly add, lest you think I don't care, that I am very saddened when I see the noose of freedom being tightened around us. That saddens me. And I appreciate what has been given to us in the past, and I wish for it to continue. I certainly do. But the, the, the fact is, the fact is that it should come as no surprise that the two kingdoms are in conflict with each other. There's a bigger picture going on than just what's happening in our government today. We have to get that in our heads. If you are a Christian, let me just tell you that the kingdom of this world does not have your best interest in mind. And because the earthly governments operate under the same principles as the kingdom of this world, we should expect conflict. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Because their value system is entirely different from what yours should be if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. It's entirely different. We have a whole different value system. And hence, at some point, there will be conflict between the believer and the earthly government. This shouldn't be a surprise. It is the reality of a two-kingdom concept. So what I want to say next is not given to prompt fear or anxiety. Rather, I give it as a warning and an exhortation. It is quite possible that we will see or experience persecution for our belief in Jesus Christ in our lifetime. I just believe it's very possible. It seems like a hazy distance to us, but listen, don't get too comfortable. It, it's just very possible that we could see it happen, I think. In fact, I've told Glenn and our family, our children, that it is possible that as a lead pastor, I may be the object of maltreatment and persecution simply by virtue of my responsibility. But again, my only prayer would be that I, if this should be the case, if this is the case, that I would remain faithful to the very end because I'm looking forward to that Stephanos. I want that crown of life. I've been given this whole subject a lot of thought recently in the last several years, particularly as I have observed the, the noose of our our religious rights or freedoms being being just squelched more and more, it seems almost on a weekly basis. And I've just been given this a lot of thought. Part of this also has been birthed out of hearing those within the Christian community, and it goes way beyond just this congregation. I've just, I've just bumped into it quite a bit, it seems like. Maybe I'm just becoming more aware of it. I don't know. But those within the Christian community speaking of equipping themselves with weapons of self-defense as we see and hear of more and more irrational bogus and um, shenanigans that are going around us, going on around us. 
I've also heard fathers say, in fact, I had a conversation with my, with my son several months ago. And, uh, you know, he's grappling with the very thing I did and have already many times over. You know, what would I do if, if someone would come and, and, and abuse my wife and children? And these are real questions. These are things that we wrestle with. What would I do? What is the right thing to do? What, is, what should my response be? Uh, I, I can certainly relate to the depth of emotion when I think of being put in that, in that position. What is my responsibility as a protector and provider of my family? How do we reconcile the abuses of the innocent? How has our culture shaped our worldview on all of this? The historic doctrine of non-resistance as generally accepted and taught by the Anabaptists and others I think is often insufficient and incomplete. I'm sure you've heard me say that before, because I've said it before, or at least alluded to it. Non-resistance as generally taught will only accomplish half of what Jesus taught us. Just not to resist evil. We think of non-resistance as not going to war. And when I was teaching some of these principles up north with those who were, did not have an Anabaptist background, they said, oh, you're a pacifist. And I quickly said, no, I'm not a pacifist. There's a huge difference between being a pacifist. I think that's sort of where non-resistance, by the way, that's not a biblical term. We use it. It's not a biblical term. But that's oftentimes where people stop. We don't go to war. We don't resist evil. We don't fight back. We turn the other cheek. But see, that's only half of what Jesus taught. The other part is, there's another dimension that is often overlooked, the principle of suffering love. Suffering love not only keeps me from using weapons of self-defense or to inflict pain or harm on another person, but it ups the ante a notch by calling us to engage proactively in that person's life. Suffering love motivates us to do exactly what Jesus said. Love your enemy, to bless those who curse you, to do good to those who mistreat you and hate you, to pray for those who inflict persecution on you, to feed your enemies, to give them a drink, to heap coals of fire on their head and not out of reaction. That's what suffering love does. That is a grace that is beyond our ability to do in our own strength. We cannot do that in our own strength. Our natural reaction to pain is to go back, to shy away from it. it. It takes a grace that is beyond our strength to be able to accomplish that. There is just no room for retaliation. It's not because my tradition taught me so. 
or not to fight back, but it's because the Bible gives me no alternative. It just gives me no alternative. There is no scripture that teaches anyone or to points that we should instruct, that instructs us to fight back or to use self-defense when our enemies attack our families or ourselves. There's just no scripture that teaches us to do that. And I know one of the scriptures that often comes up is, well, Bible says that if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an infidel. That's taken completely out of the context, completely out of the context. That verse there, if you look and read the verses, is talking about taking care of widows and how it's up to the families to take care of the widows. And, and it's your responsibility to make sure that their needs are met. It's totally taken out of the context by using that to say that this is why we should react in self-defense to our families. Not only are we to not resist evil, Jesus takes it a step further and he gives us numerous responses to suffering love. Came across the passage I just studied it a little bit the other day in Matthew uh, 26, and the the uh, other gospels also mentions this. Matthew 26:52, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, Judas had betrayed him, and he brings this mob out to Jesus to arrest him, and uh, and Peter, we know what Peter did takes his sword and he takes a whack at the servant of the high priest and he cuts off his ear. And Jesus said something to Peter that I've often contemplated on. I, I just wonder, I just felt like there, there, I was missing part of, I was missing part of what Jesus was trying to say. What did he say? Somebody repeat it back to me. What did Peter, what did Jesus say? Well, it was sort of that way. Put your sword back. That's close. Some of it. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. Now, if you go back, I think it's, the, it, I think it's in Luke. I, I read it the other day. I didn't write it down. I think if you go back in the count where it's talked about in Luke, if you go back several verses before that, before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus actually instructed the disciples to take their sword. I think Jesus was wanting to create an opportunity to give a message that is core to who he is. It was sort of a last hurrah. And as that crowd came against him, maybe in Jesus' mind he would say, go for it, Peter, go for it. I'm going to teach you something. I mean, he, he had the ability to take care of the person that was wounded. And Peter did that. And he says, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Now, if we take that literal, we know that not everybody that has used the sword has died by the sword. So what was Jesus saying? Any feedback? Yeah, you resist evil. Right, but what, what specifically was Jesus saying 
that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. prayed about it. I said, Jesus, I think I'm missing something. What is it that you were trying to say? And and a message came so clear. It's just all of a sudden just like, wow, I missed it all this time. I think what Peter, I think what Jesus was saying, listen, we are going into another we are going into another dispensation. If you live by the law, because that was the law, if somebody kills you, you kill back, or if somebody knocks your teeth out, you knock theirs out. That's the law. If you live by the law, you're going to be judged by the law. There's no grace. And it's, wow, that's powerful. Wow. If you, if, you, if you want to revert back to where we've just come from, I'll give you that opportunity. But there's something a whole lot better over here. I just believe that suffering love is Jesus' way. I know this is huge. This is big. Uh, and, and yet, I pray that this would be my response if I were put to the test. I understand that suffering love comes with a price tag. It, it, it will cost us something. But it is the way of Jesus. When I, when I consider those who have died, <clears throat> such as the Christians that were at Smyrna and others throughout history for the sake and the cause of Christ, I, I just keep asking myself, what, what gave them the strength to remain faithful? And I asked that same question as I read this passage of Scripture about the church of Smyrna. What gave them the strength? And two things come to my mind. And they're both found in this passage of Scripture. In closing, I just want to mention these two things. The first one is, I think they had an eternal perspective. Look at the verse where it says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you a Stephanos of life. The less we have, the less things we have, the less attached we will be to earthly things. That's just the principle of life. Perhaps our adulterated attachment to houses and lands and things has caused us to have a lopsided view and a lopsided response. Could it be that the freedoms we have experienced here in the United States all these years have actually conditioned us to be more comfortable in this kingdom than in God's kingdom? I don't know. I mean, only you can answer that. I, can an I, I have to answer that before God myself. Maybe the poor in third world countries are much closer to the kingdom of God than many of us in the United States simply by virtue of their poverty. Now, I know that these are hard things to say because I know I am so guilty uh, of this very thing myself.
what I don't want you to walk away from here is saying, you know what? I guess the only way to really make it is to just take take a, an oath of voluntary uh, poverty. So what I'm saying, for some reason, and I don't understand, I prayed many many times just for for whatever reason. Uh, it just God just has not opened the door for us to purchase a piece of property. We've prayed about it. We've looked at many different options. And there are numerous things that play into this whole thing, but we just have not had a piece about purchasing a piece of property. What I can say out of that, and I want you, I want, I want to be, I, I'm, I'm cautious about saying this. I'll explain myself. But what I can say out of that is that in some ways, it just feels like I am less attached to the things of this world. Now, I am not condemning anyone. In fact, I would, I encourage my son to buy a house. So I'm not, I'm not putting that to anyone that has a piece of property. What I, what I would say to that is that whatever God has given to you, hold very loosely. Hold very loosely. Do not let it control you or who define who you become and who you are. And, and maybe the less that we have, the easier it is to do that. Okay? I don't have a property to give up, so there's nothing to give up. I mean, in that, in that case, that's, that's the premise from where I want to come from. And maybe someday God will give us that opportunity. Now, certainly something that we would desire. But it seems that those who have committed their lives to die for the sake of Christ have had an eternal perspective that maybe many of us have been tainted by. If you, if you want to develop an eternal perspective, then I'm going to put some, some verses in front of you. And you don't have to write down the verses. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. But jot down the references and then look them up in just some quiet morning when you're having your devotions. Just let God speak to you through these verses. First Chronic, uh, First Corinthians nine twenty five, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Eternal perspective. Philippians four verse one. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Eternal perspective. It's not just about today. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming? I mean, isn't that what we're living for? It's just so easy to think that the things of tomorrow are the most important things in life when they're not. It's being in the presence of God when he comes. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown. And by the way, these are all the words Stephanos. There's laid up for me a Stephanos of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Eternal perspective. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the Stephanos of life, 
which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Eternal perspective. And one more in, in Peter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the Stephanos of glory that does not fade away. This is what matters, people. This is what matters in life. And, and let's just not allow ourselves to get so comfy and comfortable in this, in this blessing of freedom that we've had for so many years. So that when that is taken from us, we will cave in spiritually. These people had an eternal perspective. The second thing is that they understood that their new body could never be destroyed. He who overcomes, Jesus said to them, shall not be hurt by the second death. There will be a second death. And if you cave spiritually, you will experience the second death. So, run for the Stephanos and don't experience the second death. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you so much for this passage of scripture that you've given for our instruction and our challenge. And just, Lord, that forgive us for the times, Jesus. Forgive us for the times that we have allowed um, arrogantly to think that we deserve what we have and become upset when we see that being stripped from us. Lord, our kingdom is not of this world. It is your kingdom that we're working for and that we're living for. And so, Jesus, forgive us for the times that we've allowed us to become so encumbered by the kingdom of this world that we have, that we've neglected your kingdom. Lord, give us a new sense of urgency and a new appreciation for your kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come, your will be done right here on the earth as, is, as it's done in heaven. And help us to be faithful. Lord, we look forward to and anticipate the Stephanos that you will give to us, the crown of life that will never fade away. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.